Welcome to Season 6, Episode 6 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we use a movie, a novel, or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Kim Kessler, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis, Anne Hawley, and Leslie Watts. This week, I'm looking at Silver Linings Playbook in order to continue my study of crafting an intentional beginning. This 2018 film was written and directed by David O. Russell, based on the 2008 novel of the nearly same name by Matthew Quick. As always, this is an adult conversation, and you may hear some adult words. And a specific content warning for this one, the film and the novel are about mental illness, and there is a flashback scene of severe personal violence, as well as strong language throughout. Okay, let's talk about the story. Silver Linings Playbook has been a big influence on me because of its peculiar kind of love story and the way it addresses mental health, all things that are totally my jam. Now, I've seen the film many, many times, but I recently read the novel, which was surprisingly very different. There are things about each that I really like and things about each that I don't quite like. But overall, for me, the big meta why of this story is so powerful. There's a blogger on tastelikecrazy.com, and she put it this way. Two very broken people who broke their families and who managed to be less broken together. And to that, I say, yes, please. If you also enjoy stories like this, I'd like to invite you to check out my novel, According to Plan. You can find a link to it at my website, KimberKessler.com. That's K-I-M-B-E-R-K-E-S-S-L-E-R.com. So, for the purposes of today's episode, I will mostly focus on the film version, but I will point out a few things from the book version as well. Also, I'm going to include a link to the Taste Like Crazy blog that does a great job lining out the differences between the book and the film and how each changes the story for better or worse. Here is the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff for the film. In the beginning hook. After a court-ordered eight-month stay in a mental hospital, Pat comes home on the condition that he regularly sees a therapist and takes his medication. But he refuses to take his medication, determined instead to beat back negativity with exercise and a positive mindset, all in an effort to remake himself so that he can reunite with his wife, Nikki. But when his attraction to the troubled widow, Tiffany, triggers him to manically search for his wedding video, he gets caught in a flashback and accidentally injures his mom. The next day, he begins to take his medication. In the middle build which you will notice we are breaking into two parts. At the encouragement of his therapist, Pat befriends Tiffany, hoping it will be a sign of good faith to Nikki that he's a changed person. Tiffany offers to deliver a letter from Pat to Nikki, breaking a restraining order that she has against him, if he agrees to be her partner in an upcoming dance competition. They begin rehearsing regularly, and Tiffany delivers a letter back to him from Nikki. Pat's behavior continues to stabilize, but when Pat's brother is punched at a Philadelphia Eagles tailgate party, Pat is unable to stay calm. But when Pat's superstitious father enters into a double-or-nothing bet that requires the Eagles to beat the Cowboys and for Pat and Tiffany to score at least a 5.0 in their dance, Pat refuses to participate. Tiffany is upset and says a line that clues Pat into the fact that Nikki never wrote him the letter Tiffany did. He returns to rehearsal with her, looking at her very differently. In the ending payoff. Okay, the ending payoff is entirely the final performance for the dance competition. It feels like one long scene, so it's kind of tricky to figure out all five commandments. Anne's going to talk about this more, but basically, it's just the day of the competition. Tiffany is stressed. Pat is watching her very closely with that different look in his eye. They arrive at the competition, and Nikki does in fact show up. This throws Tiffany completely out of sorts. Pat and Tiffany dance. They get a 5.0, winning the bet. Pat has a quiet moment of closure with Nikki and then goes after Tiffany for his final declaration of love. So the genre here is worldview maturation. We also have external genres of love, performance, and a society domestic supporting plot. Now, while the two versions of the story are very different, I would still ultimately classify both as global worldview maturation. Pat goes from a singular belief and singular want at the beginning of the story that choosing to be positive and reject negativity is enough to fix everything and that he and Nikki are meant to reunite. 
By the end of the story, he's released his obsession with Nikki and sees that it's the efforts of those around him that have helped him get well, or better. The generic cause and effect statement for worldview maturation is, when a sympathetic protagonist with naive black and white views of the world and mistakenly conceived goals experiences a loss or trial that shows them the world is multilayered and imperfect, they embrace better suited goals and actions. This statement feels very true for both versions. When it comes to the external genres, though, the film elevates the performance story, making the dance competition the entire focus of the ending payoff, whereas in the book, it's more low-key and it's part of the middle build. Another big difference is that the book has a worldview revelation plot that supports the worldview maturation. In the book, Pat doesn't remember the incident that sent him to the hospital, and his family is actively working to hide things to protect him. Also, in the book, he's been in the hospital for four years, most of which he doesn't even remember, where in the film, it's only been eight months. And as Amy from TastelikeCrazy.com put it, I wish I could go to some parallel place where I could have read the book and seen the movie and simultaneously have no knowledge the other existed. I think we've all felt that way about a book versus movie adaptation. So I have been on a quest to understand what makes a great beginning to a story the specific elements we need in order to not only hook our readers, but lay the foundation for the story we are seeking to share. This means establishing the crystal clear life values that signal the human need we're working with and trigger subconscious expectations in the reader. Because whether we are aware of it or not, the structure of story, the genres of story are in us. They are coded into our subconscious as patterns that we recognize as meaningful. What is becoming clear is that the way to do this is through conventions. These are the story's specific characters, the specific setting, and specific means of turning the plot, the premise, the conflicts, and the constraints that are in the story. Along with our content genre life values, we must introduce our readers to the other leaves on genre's five-leaf clover, specifically the reality leaf and the style leaf. This ensures that our reader is properly oriented so as to generate expectations, and then they can settle in until those expectations are paid off, in a surprising yet inevitable way, of course. So now we know what to communicate, our story's primary conventions, and we know when to communicate them, in the beginning, of course, in the beginning hook, the beginning scene, the beginning beat, and the beginning sentence. So the real question is, how? How do we communicate all of this to our readers? What words do we use? In what specific order do I introduce things? How much do I say or save or omit? Now, I'm sure that all of you pantsers that are listening are like, what the heck are you talking about? Just write it. You'll figure it all out as you go. Writing is rewriting. My hope is that by studying intentionally, I can integrate the how of all of this into my implicit learning. But until then, I want to explicitly understand what I'm doing and why for every part of my story. And also, it's really hard for me to turn off my super planner brain. Personally, I've been worried about being too on the nose in my writing, navigating the bizarre tension between showing and telling. The biggest lesson I'm learning is that every choice and detail in your story should be specific, on purpose. It is the specificity of your details that make the story real and signal your reader's subconscious. So I'm less worried now about being on the nose, at least in my first draft. Don't be vague. Be specific. Okay, so let's look at the specifics that the film uses to introduce these conventions. The first scene, the first story event, Mom picks up Pat from the hospital. The onstage characters are Pat, our protagonist, and we see him reading a letter alone in his room to his wife, Nikki. We're introduced to the hospital staff, we're introduced to other patients, doctors, and then Pat's mom arrives to take him out of the hospital, and we also meet Danny, his friend, who's also a patient at the hospital. There is a very important offstage character, Nikki, Pat's wife, who, again, he's reading the letter to in the opening. The setting here is a hospital in Baltimore, which is superimposed on the screen, something that we don't do specifically in novels, but you can always put a setting at the start of a chapter if you want to, or you can just have someone refer to where they are. And we also have them driving in the car when they're leaving. Now, there are specific means of turning the plot that are introduced here, and it mostly has to do with Pat's internal elements, which we talk about from Friedman's framework. His character. We learn that Pat is strong-willed. He tells the hospital staff to wait for him. 
before coming out of his room. We see him spit out his medication after proving that he'd already swallowed it. And we see that he actually sneaks Danny off site and tries to get his mom to take him home. And then also when his mom finds out that Danny isn't supposed to leave, Pat actually tries to grab the steering wheel from his mom. And it's kind of a scary moment. So he's very strong willed. His thought, we really get to understand his existing worldview, his beliefs about Nikki, that they'll be back together, his belief about negativity being poison. We see that in a group therapy session, a brief moment there. And it's also that anything that isn't 100% positive is negative. This directly impacts his wants and actions. We see him exercising, the fact that he wants to read Nikki's entire syllabus and that he's wanting to be positive all the time. He's remaking himself, as he says. And then we also see his fortune. These are his external circumstances. The fact that he's in a mental hospital, he's been there for eight months, that he is exercising and trying to improve himself, he's attending therapy, and that his mom picks him up and brings him home against doctor's preferred orders. But he also, he does have these other people in his life who care about him. So those are all the things that we get just in the first scene. And these tell us the kind of story that we're watching or reading. Let's walk through the remaining story events of the beginning hook and just see what we can point out here. The next story event is they arrive home and we get to meet Pat's father, who is very different in the movie than he is in the book. And his dad pushes back on Pat's plan to get back with Nikki. But Pat doubles down on his worldview in this scene about being positive and why does everybody got to be all negative and everything's going to work out. Next, we see Pat reading A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway, and he hates it. It's a really funny moment <laughs> in the film where he throws the book out the window and breaks the window and then wakes his parents up in the middle of the night raging about how terrible the book is and how the ending is not happy. Then we see his first therapy session with Dr. Patel, and Dr. Patel tests Pat by playing the wedding song, which has been a very awful trigger for Pat. And so we get to see that moment and we really get to see what Pat's really dealing with. This is really the first moment of stress that we see on Pat and it's very compelling. And it's also the same in the book, but it's just a different song. We also see that Pat refuses to take his meds. He straight up tells his doctor, I don't want to take meds. And they discuss him being bipolar. So yeah, I snapped. I almost beat him to death. But then I get fucking chastised for it. I get that I'm parallel to my father. I don't think so. All right. Can you talk about something that you did before or after? Yeah, about a week before the incident, I called the cops and I told them that my wife and the history guy were plotting against me by embezzling money from the local high school, which wasn't true. It was a delusion. And we later found out from the hospital that's because I'm, uh... Undiagnosed bipolar. Yeah. With mood swings and weird thinking brought on by severe stress, which rarely happens, thank God. And then the shower incident happened, and that, that's when everything stopped. So I then realized that, oh, oh wow, you know, I've been dealing with this my whole life. And, uh, and without any supervision, I've been doing it all on my own uh, with no help. And, um, you know, I basically have been, I've been like white knuckling it this whole time. That had to be hard. Yeah, it's a lot to deal with, especially when you don't know what the hell is happening, which I do now, sort of. In the next scene, we have Pat arguing with his mom about taking his meds, his dad sitting in the living room. He's really superstitious, and he wants Pat to watch the Philadelphia Eagles games with him. There's a random kid that shows up wanting to interview someone about mental health, which becomes a stressor for his dad. His dad starts yelling. There's some family tension, and Pat decides to get out of there and go running. And then it ends with his parents on the porch calling out to him, don't look for Nikki, which is kind of hilarious. The following scenes, we have Pat running. He runs by his old school, his old job, and he runs into his old boss who is not happy to see him. And this is likely the person who ends up calling the cops regarding the restraining order. He runs by his friend Ronnie's house and gets invited to dinner, which has a potential connection to Nikki because Pat's friends Ronnie and Veronica are friends with Nikki. So Pat takes this as a sign. And so when he comes home in the next scene, he is very excited. He tells his parents that things are going well, and he tries to get on the phone and call Nikki. At this moment, a cop shows up at his house to discuss the restraining order. This is a Harold character that shows up in the film that does not exist in the book, that shows up to talk to us about the restraining order, to talk to us about how if he does anything wrong, he's going to be going back to Baltimore, etc., etc. So it establishes those stakes very clearly. The next scene is Dr. Patel continuing to encourage Pat to take his meds and tells him to get a strategy. 
Then we have a dinner scene where Pat goes over to Ronnie and Veronica's house. And here is where he meets Veronica's sister, Tiffany. And Tiffany is a widow who's also struggled with mental health recently. And Pat's interaction with her is very non-filtered and really funny. In the book, interestingly, all of this takes place in his head. He doesn't say these things out loud. And I personally like them much more as dialogue. During this dinner scene, Veronica forces them to take a tour of the house, and Pat and Tiffany have a really great moment where they click during dinner where they're talking about meds. What meds are you on? Me? None. I used to be on lithium and Seroquel and Abilify, but I don't take them anymore. No. They make me foggy, and they also make me bloated. Yeah. I was on Xanax and Effexor, but I agree. It wasn't as sharp, so I stopped. You ever take Clonopin? Clonopin, yeah. Right? Jesus. Like, is it what? Yeah. What day is it? How about trazodone? Trazodone. Oh, it flattens you out. I mean, you are done. It takes the light right out of your eyes. God, I bet it does. This conversation also does not appear in the book. Pat walks Tiffany home, where she offers him sex. And he says, no, he's married, and insults her by pointing out that she can't be married because her husband, Tommy, is dead. This scene is in the book almost exactly the way that it is in the film. This moment of Tiffany breaking down, she hugs him, she kind of cries on him, then she walks away. This is the same moment in the film as it is in the book. And Pat comes home agitated and he wants to find his wedding video. He's frantically searching for his wedding video. He gets caught up in this memory, this flashback of the past. His wedding song, his trigger is playing in his mind, and he's remembering this violent incident, and he accidentally elbows his mom and knocks her down. Pat and dad both lose it. They get in this big fight. The neighbors can hear them, and the cops are called, and that same cop character shows up. And then the next day, Pat decides to start taking his meds. He fixes the window that he broke, and he starts running again. That is basically scene by scene what the beginning hook of the story is. And the beginning hook of the book and the beginning hook of the film are really similar. But what I want to point out here is that the way that this beginning hook works, it it really works. And I we all agreed that there are things about the film that don't work, but the beginning hook works. It sets up really clear expectations, introducing us to Pat, the kind of struggle that he's facing, the fact that he was in the hospital, and we're introduced to his family dynamics. And what I really like is how Pat's wants and needs are very clearly introduced to us in the opening scene. And his essential action really is to do it on his own. He tells his doctor he's been white knuckling it through life, and he's really proud of that fact. And his plan is basically to keep white knuckling it through life. But now his version of white knuckling is positivity, blatant, over the top, everything's positive, we're going to find silver linings. And that is his black and white view, the thing that is not true. You can't just be positive all the time. Not everything's going to work out that way. In the book, they do a really great job of him coming to this lesson by the end of the story and realizing that things are not going to be perfect. The film ending is much more sugar-coated and happy, 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 and it doesn't quite get the win-but-lose part or the lose-but-win part. There's not enough loss in the ending of the film version. I still love it for sentimental reasons, but it doesn't work from a genre story perspective the way that the book does. The thing that I want to really send home to everybody when we're looking at this specific opening and any opening is to take the time to establish life values, to introduce characters, introduce your setting, introduce these different aspects that are going to come into play later in the story. One place that I've gotten stuck when it comes to how to craft a beginning is this idea that everybody tells you to start in the middle of things, to it feels like there's this fear that you're going to start back too far and you're going to have this really slow opening, which can 100% happen. But at the same time, what I've noticed lately is that there's a tendency for people to start too late, to want to just jump into things before they've given the reader a chance to orient into the story, before they've introduced the setting, the characters, the way things currently are, that all important status quo, and then change things up. So what I love about this story is that we get a very important event. Pat is coming home from the hospital and he doesn't want to take his meds. That really is in itself a major moment for Pat. 
But it's still also his status quo. It's the way he was at the hospital. Now he's just transitioning to home. But we don't introduce the catalyst of meeting Tiffany until much later in the act. And that is the thing that really triggers him and makes it where he has his act out moment that finally has him decide to start taking his meds. So the book ending of this beginning hook about not wanting to take his meds to deciding to take his meds and all of the sequence of events that happen in order for that to take place, for that to happen in a way that's believable and true to character, it's not something he gives up on easily, I think is really well done in the film as well as the book. These are just working hypotheses. I'm continuing to flounder and flail through all of this stuff, but I hope that you can start looking at the beginnings of stories a little bit more clearly and with a sharper focus and worry less about just making things jump in super late or being too on the nose. These are things that I struggle with personally. Now, we've got a whole lot of really excellent insights into the Silver Linings playbook that I cannot wait to hear. So Anne, can you take us through what you have for the story. Yeah, I totally agree that the beginning hook sets up very clear expectations. Now, I should be clear that I only watched the movie this week. I did not read the book. It sets up clear expectations and it does not meet them. And that's what I'm going to talk about. The film doesn't work for me and it doesn't work on a couple of important axes. First of all, is it a drama or a comedy? Now, of course, a story can be both a dramedy or whatever, dramatic comedy, comedic drama. But many of the places where Kim, you mentioned this was really funny, weren't funny at all to me. Now, everyone's sense of humor differs, and I'm not exactly noted for mine. But to me, the kind of yelling and arguing and throwing a book out the window and breaking a window and waking up the neighborhood and all that, there's nothing funny about that. It's extremely, it's like distressing. I can't imagine going through that and thinking it funny in real life. So I felt like when the movie ends on a comedic note, which I will talk about in a minute, it's sort of belying the overall style that it's set up in the beginning. So that's one thing. There's very little comedy to me until that core event. Now, the only other comedic elements are carried by Danny, who is played in the movie by Chris Tucker. And to me, they're kind of random. Like they demonstrate Danny's particular mental disorder. And it's possibly there to show the contrast with Pat, who is arguably a little bit more stable than Danny. I'm not quite sure. So that's so much for the style genre. Now, Much more importantly, what the hell is the content genre here? I agree with you, Kim, that it's mostly about accepting and learning to deal with mental illness. It's about second chances, accepting the help of others, including the help of a therapist and the help of medication in order to build a new and more stable life. I totally agree that Pat's journey from naivete to a greater degree of sophistication is the meaning. It is a worldview maturation story. There's no question about that. Unfortunately, the core scenes in each of the acts do not support this lovely idea. Now, I have it on insider authority that what we here at StoryGrid have been calling the 15 core scenes for several years now will soon be officially rebranded as the 20 core scenes. Sean seems to have had a kind of midpoint shift of his own and has accepted that the middle build can almost always be broken into two halves or acts. It's certainly obvious in this film, so I'm going to take a quick look at the 20 core scenes. I just have to interrupt and say a hallelujah about breaking the middle build into two halves because, honestly, it just hurts my brain sometimes to try to cram it all into five core scenes. I need those two halves. So Some stories are more more three-act than four-act. Right. This one it has a clear four-act structure. So I'm going to keep it brief because, Kim, you've already covered a lot of this. The inciting incident, Pat is released from a mental hospital on condition of seeing his therapist, etc. There's a bunch of progressive complications where he refuses his meds and goes on his own plan. He freaks out at his therapist's office, and then he meets Tiffany. And the turning point is Tiffany's sexual overture causes him to have kind of a break, and he runs off, and that's where he accidentally injures his mother. The crisis for him is to keep believing in his own self-help plan, his kind of pie-in-the-sky self-help total silver linings help plan, or get on his meds. And the climax is he sees that his meds are necessary, and the resolution is he begins taking his meds. That's pretty straightforward. Again, I will say that the beginning hook of this story is very true to the genre that it purports to be telling us. Now, in the first half of the middle build, the inciting incident is Tiffany offers to deliver a letter from Pat to Nikki in contravention of Nikki's restraining order. That is a choice that she makes. It's not a choice that Pat makes. 
The turning point in this act is that Tiffany changes her offer and makes it dependent upon Pat agreeing to join a dance competition with her. She turns it into a quid pro quo. The crisis is, will Pat agree to her terms and go to the dance even though he doesn't want to be part of a dance competition, or will he forego getting his letter to Nikki? Obviously, he chooses to agree to the dance competition because still getting into communication with Nikki is the most important thing to him. And the resolution is that they begin rehearsing together. So far, so good. The plot is still turning on Pat's delusion and on his gullibility based on that delusion that if he's just positive, he can get back together with his wife. He has taken an initial step towards a healthy relationship by agreeing to Tiffany's terms and accepting responsibility for doing something important in exchange for the significant favor he is expecting her to do. However, remember, she's the one who offered that. He wasn't by his agency. Now, in the second half of the middle bills where things get kind of crazy, the inciting incident is Pat's father bets everything he's got on the Giants game. And he needs Pat to attend the game because Pat's father is really superstitious and believes somehow that Pat's presence or absence of the game is going to make or break the final score. It's, he's kind of crazy. There's a bunch of progressive complications. Pat goes to the game. Instead of rehearsing with Tiffany as promised, he gets into a fight at the game. The Eagles lose. Dad blames it on Pat. He also loses a ton of money. And then Tiffany storms in and takes control of the story baton from here on out. The complications get louder. The people are yelling more. But the turning point isn't an escalation of the complications. She spouts a lot of sports statistics to persuade Pat's father that she's not bad luck, she's good luck, and this causes Pat's father to change his mind about her and go with her plan. She's very manipulative. The turning point of this third act is Tiffany proposes a double or nothing bet and ties the dance competition into it. Here again, Tiffany is taking the action. It's not the protagonist, it's the secondary character. And it's not only unrelated to the underlying meaning of the story, this big bet thing has really very little to do with Pat's mental health, but it also suddenly makes everything that follows turn on this performance story, which didn't even get introduced until the midpoint shift. The crisis, which belongs to Pat's father, is should he take the bet or not? Now, everybody in the room is involved in yelling at him not to do it, but the climax is Pat's father makes the choice. He takes the bet. The pressure is too great, and so that causes Pat to refuse to do the dance competition. And then in the resolution, Tiffany, in a scene where Pat isn't even present, conspires with Pat's mother and father to ensure that Pat will compete in the dance competition by telling him that Nikki will be there. They conspire to lie to him. Now, there's an all-important beat where Pat does figure out that it was Tiffany who wrote this supposed letter from Nikki rather than Nikki. And it seems like it's part of the third act, but it also launches the fourth act. So I'm going to call it the inciting incident of the final act, but you can feel the confusion here. Now, in the ending payoff, it's really hard to find clear five core scenes or moments. I think the inciting incident is when Pat reads that letter that supposedly came from Nikki, and he spots a phrase that's really unique to Tiffany in it, and he decides to keep that fact to himself. He seems to decide that he will participate in the dance competition anyway, and this is a big turning point for Pat's story. It's a step towards wisdom and maturity, but it's the barely visible causal inciting incident of the ending payoff. Now, there's a bunch of, again, a lot of progressive complications. Pat pretends he believes that Nikki's going to be at the competition. The Eagles win against the Giants. Nikki actually does appear at the competition, which was really strange because she should never have appeared. And that causes Tiffany to backslide with a stranger at the bar in the hotel where the competition is being held and drink a lot and decide not to participate. So what's the turning point? Is it Nikki's appearance in the hotel? Is it the inaudible conversation that Pat has with Nikki after the competition? There seem to be two crises. Will Tiffany dance after all? And will she believe that Pat is finally over Nikki? The problem here, these crises, whichever one you like better, both belong to Tiffany, who is not the protagonist. And they take place on either side of what appears to be the core event of the story, the actual dance performance, which isn't the genre of the story. So the climax is A, yes, Tiffany does agree to dance, and B, 
She does accept, after that dance, that Pat has given up his delusion of getting back with Nikki. And the resolution is they win the competition, which, by the way, is the totally comedic scene of bad dancing. The judges are face-palming and the audience is looking really, really uncomfortable. So just a side note, my sister, who loves this film along with me, she can't even fully watch the dancing at the end. Like She has to skip it and go to the, after it because it's so cringy. And I am totally with her. Like I had a really hard time watching it, but now that I've seen it so many times, and now I just like to watch it just for that reason. It's funny to me. <laughs> Cringe humor isn't my thing either, and I had to kind of squint sideways at it, but it was very funny. It was performed in a very comedic way. Okay, so Pat's father's money is restored because they won this outrageously unlikely bet. Tiffany and Pat officially become a couple. It's Christmas. Everyone is happy. The end. And I just want to make a note here. According to the X-Ray Notes on Amazon Prime video, Jackie Weaver, who plays Pat's mother and is just wonderful in the role, reported that during the big ballroom scene where they're watching the dance competition, her job was just to sit there with 300 other people watching the big dance performance. The judges were holding up their scorecards in take after take, and she kept doing the math and coming up with an average that did not actually equal the 5.0 that the story required. She went to a producer and told him this, and he said, oh my God, you're right, and they fixed it. Now, this might be apocryphal, I don't know, but it's recorded as an anecdote from the set. And it said a lot to me about the producers and directors' attention to detail in this film. Attention to detail is important. And so much in this story has been carelessly put together, seemingly to me in the hope that star power and great acting would cover little flaws like the scorecards not adding up and big flaws like the fact that major turning points in the story don't even belong to the protagonist. Well, were they right to think this? I don't think so. The film almost works, and it works for a lot of people for the reasons that Kim is talking about, because the dance competition is funny and gratifying in a kind of cliched, expected sort of way, and the love story ends happily. Pat does seem to be coming to terms with the reality of his mental illness, and it's lovely to see these two flawed people find love with each other. But I would argue that the film depends far too heavily on some fine acting and star power to throw sparkly dust in the audience's eyes and deflect attention from its fundamental structural flaws. And I understand that the novel is actually much, much better. Yet, yeah, I'm still working out how I feel about the novel versus the film. And our offline discussion this morning before recording has really helped me in this. And I cannot recommend enough having a group of story nerds to talk through your cognitive dissonance with. It's just so, so, so important. So thank you, Anne. That's all been amazingly helpful, and and I just so appreciate your eyes on this. So Leslie, I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about point of view and narrative device for Silver Linings Playbook. Like Anne and like you, Kim, I'm focusing on specifics today, but of course, from a different angle. Um, one of the ways you make choosing specifics easier is by creating constraints that narrow your options. And for me, one of the most useful constraints you can leverage is your narrative device and point of view. If you've listened to our recent episodes, you know that this is my obsession. I mean, focus for the season, point of view, and narrative device answer the question, how do I deliver my story to the reader? Point of view is what we're familiar with from grade school. It tells us whether the story is in first person or third person limited, for example, omniscient, and whether it's written in the past or present tense. The narrative device or situation tells you who is conveying the story, to whom, when and where, in what form, and why. Getting clarity on the narrative device choice has been transformative for many of my clients because it provides those useful constraints that limit the infinite choices you have to make in a story. So when you understand why someone is sharing a story, to whom and under what circumstances, the question of which details you should and shouldn't include becomes clearer. Now, I go into depth in this in my bite-sized episode on choosing your point of view, and I'll include links to that and my point of view articles in the show notes. But let's look at Silver Linings Playbook. 
I start my inquiry by thinking about the problem or problems that arise from the story's premise. The premise is a person in a particular setting with a problem. Here, we have a person with mental illness who's transitioning home from inpatient treatment and needs to make sense of a confounding world and find love and belonging. For the novel and the film, the problem is how to help the reader understand the subjective experience of someone with severe mental illness. Now, the film has an additional problem of presenting a global internal genre in a medium that doesn't grant natural access to the protagonist's thoughts and feelings. In other words, their internal experience. It can be handled with lots of voiceover, as is done in Bridget Jones's diary adaptation. That doesn't always work, though, and it can feel forced. It's one way. But I think a worse option is to simply ignore the problem, which is what seems to have happened here. Now, for my analysis, I'm focusing on the novel primarily, but I'll make reference to the film as well. So what's the point of view? In the novel, we have first person, present tense. The film kind of feels like a third person limited, not omniscient, but from Pat's perspective until the midpoint when it begins to feel more omniscient. What's the narrative device? I don't see a clear narrative device for the film, and therein lies the problem. In the novel, Pat is the protagonist, which is the who, and he's inside the story, not on the periphery or on the outside, which is the where. Pat is writing what he calls his daily memoirs, which is the form, for himself, primarily. That's the two. But the story also includes letters to and ostensibly from Nikki. Pat wants to keep track of what's happening because his memory is slipping. And in this way, the memoir helps him attempt to make sense of his world. And that's the why. The writing happens in close proximity in time and space to the events that he's describing. And that's the when. So he doesn't have a lot of time to metabolize or gain perspective until later in the story. So how well does this work? Well, I've already said, from my perspective, the film doesn't work because there seems to be no unifying narrative device. The novel's narrative device is clear and it works quite effectively. Now, here's an example of a problem from the film. There's a scene near the end when Pat realizes that Tiffany wrote the letter that ostensibly comes from Nikki. Now, we only find this out later. There's a question and we can kind of suss it out, but we don't get confirmation until later. So the narrative drive in that scene really is mystery. We don't know what Pat is thinking about this revelation at all until the end. And it feels like a cheat because much of the film relies on a variety of dramatic irony where we can see the ways that Pat is misreading situations to his detriment, and he can't see those. So in those circumstances, we know more than Pat does. And as Valerie tells us, dramatic irony relies on empathy for the character, I didn't feel a lot of empathy for Pat in the film simply because we're only seeing the outward manifestation of the sense he's making of the world and other people's behavior. We can't see his thought process. So the film relies on the objective facts and, as Anne points out, some solid acting to create empathy. This is a man who experiences mental illness that interferes with his ability to make sense of the world, but we don't get a sense of the subjective meaning for Pat, which we get through the narrative in the novel. Now, to be clear, there are some lovely moments in the film, and I remember them fondly as I review the novel, but the novel allows us to linger and understand the specific ways that Pat is struggling, and that gives rise to empathy. We see Pat's 
internal experience alongside his external experience. And that gap between internal and external allows for some dark humor to arise in an organic way that in the film feels forced and cringy. Now, I had no trouble attaching to Pat in the novel, and I wanted to keep reading because I cared about whether Pat would be able to make sense of his world and find someone who really loves him. Sigh. I love it. I love everything you share about point of view and narrative device. It's just so fantastic. Thank you so much. So Valerie, what is it that you've seen in this film? Leslie asked if I'd look at narrative drive and empathy this week. So I'll take a little break from forces of antagonism, but not to worry, I'll be coming back to it. When I first introduced this topic last season, I said that there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy means likability, In other words, whether a reader likes a protagonist. And empathy means relatability, or whether a reader can connect with the protagonist on an emotional level. Now, it doesn't matter if readers like a main character, but they must be able to connect emotionally. So with respect to Silver Linings Playbook, the question is, do we connect with Pat? And I think the answer is yes. Pat is an underdog. The odds are against him, and the chances of him achieving his object of desire, which is to reunite with Nikki, are slim. There's a book I've been studying called Writing for Emotional Impact by Carl Iglesias, and I highly recommend it. Iglesias outlines a number of ways empathy can be generated. One of them is to have the main character feeling something that the reader has also felt. This is part of where the idea of specificity begets universality comes in. This does happen in Silver Linings Playbook. Pat is heartbroken and terrified. Yes, he talks about being positive and about looking for the positive, the silver lining, in a situation, but all of that stems from his desperation to reunite with Nikki. Notice how Pat's emotion is directly connected to his conscious object of desire. It's his why. Why does Pat want Nikki back? Well, because he's heartbroken and terrified of losing her. These emotions are behind all his actions, the weight loss, the therapy, the positive thinking, and so on. And we've all been there, whether, (laughs) you know, whether we want to admit it to ourselves or not. At some point, we've tried to become a different person in order to attract someone we're in love with. Just as empathy isn't sympathy, it's also not pity. And I think there's a fine line between creating empathy and pity. And I'm not sure exactly where it is, but in this film, I think it's a question of getting too much information too soon. There's a scene in the beginning hook. It's only 13 minutes into the story. It's the one in Dr. Patel's office. And this is where the screenwriters are giving the audience a huge big information dump. Pat blurts out all the things he's been dealing with and everything that has led up to this point. It's his entire backstory. We get so much information so fast that we don't have time to process it and there isn't enough time for empathy to be generated. Instead, what we feel is pity. In about a minute and a half, we find out that Pat's wedding song is a trigger, that Pat walked in on his wife having sex with the history teacher and that the history teacher had tenure, which is salt in the wound because Pat didn't have a permanent job at the school. We find out that his father is violent, that Pat accused his wife and her lover of plotting against him and embezzling money. And we find out that Pat has lived with undiagnosed bipolar disease with mood swings and, quote, weird thinking brought on by severe stress. Now, If these points had been dramatized and revealed one at a time over the course of the film, they would have generated enormous empathy. However, this is so much information, so much trauma to handle in one blow that it makes the viewer shut down emotionally. We simply can't process that much suffering in a minute and a half. We just can't. So rather than soak it up, we let it bounce right off us because, you know, we have to. Pat ends his monologue by saying, I've been dealing with this my whole life without any supervision. I've been dealing with it all on my own with no help and I've basically been white-knuckling it this whole time. By telling us this rather than showing, 
The writers have robbed us of an opportunity to connect emotionally with Pat. We're already distanced because of the avalanche of information we just got. Telling us Pat's history, rather than showing it, creates another degree of separation. What we've got then is a bunch of issues that intellectually we all recognize as significant and difficult to deal with. Intellectually, we know that he's traumatized and we can agree that the odds are against him, not just in his pursuit of Nikki, but in life generally. But an intellectual connection is the opposite of an emotional one. It is not empathy. In the end, we're left with one major point of connection. We empathize with Pat around his global external object of desire. We know what it feels like to want to be with someone who doesn't want to be with us. This leads me to narrative drive. At a global level, the main question the viewer is asking is, will Pat and Nikki reunite? In other words, will Pat get what he wants? Narrative drive is all about getting and keeping the reader's interest. And interest is generated when there are unanswered questions on the table. It's our job as writers to create a story that constantly has the reader wondering whether and how the protagonist will get his object of desire and what will happen next. People are curious by nature. And if you don't believe me, observe your own behavior. Observe the behavior of the people around you. The way you pique curiosity and inspire questions in readers' minds is to control how much information they have with respect to the protagonist's pursuit of his object of desire. Now, just as empathy is not pity, curiosity is not confusion. The filmmakers have intentionally created a sense of chaos by having characters talking and yelling over one another, and by having them repeat the same line of dialogue over and over, or by having a line of dialogue echoed by multiple characters in succession. And that's an artistic choice, and I can see why they would have done that. But apart from that, there's confusion about the plot. On paper, the concept of Silver Linings Playbook is terrific. It's a courtship love story between Pat and Tiffany, where the third person in the love triangle is an estranged ex-wife. In terms of narrative drive, however, I found the execution frustrating. The beginning hook sets us up to believe that this is a story about Pat actively trying to get his wife back. We're expecting to meet Nikki before the end of Act 1, but the person we meet is Tiffany, and by the end of the first act, we're wondering whether Pat will have a relationship with Tiffany. But we're still wondering about Nikki. We're still expecting to meet her, either for them to reconcile or for her to finally end it between them. In the first 20 minutes of the film, all we hear about is their relationship, so we're expecting to see it with our own eyes. At the end of the beginning hook, when Tiffany hugs Pat, he says, wait, what? What's happening? <laughs> I gotta be honest, that's exactly what I was asking myself, and that's not the question you want your reader to be wondering. There are a number of times in this film where the dialogue is so on the nose that I wondered why they bothered. It reminded me of the Shawshank Redemption, where the voiceover told us things we already knew. For example, during Pat's rant about a farewell to arms, he asks why a story can't have a happy ending, and immediately we know that Silver Linings Playbook is going to have a happily ever after. Then, towards the end of the middle build, Pat says to his father, I'm sorry you can't come to the stadium. You're getting kicked out for beating everybody up. I guess we're not that different, huh, Dad? Well, we already know he's like his father. We've been watching it for an hour. But now, because of that one line, we also know that Pat is about to get kicked out of the stadium for beating people up, which means we know the Eagles are going to lose, which means we know his father's about to lose everything. But not only that, we know he's going to lose any hope of reconciling with Nikki because the very reason she has a restraining order against him is because he beat someone up. So we pretty much know the last 40 minutes of the story. We're not asking ourselves any questions because we've already guessed what's going to happen. Now I want to finish here by talking about the happily ever after ending. It doesn't make sense. First, we've spent an hour and 50 minutes, five zero minutes, hearing about how Pat wants to reunite with Nikki. We've been waiting to meet Nikki, and lo and behold, she shows up at the dance competition. 
Now, there's a massive plot hole around why she's there, but we'll forgive that because at least we finally get to see them together. And this is what we've been waiting for, right? But then they switch to Tiffany's point of view and we're robbed of the very scene we've been anticipating. Yeah, we hear some chit-chat between them, but we don't care about that. We don't want the chit-chat. We want to know what he whispers in her ear and we don't get to find out. This is the point when the Hollywood ending kicks in. And a Hollywood ending doesn't belong tacked on to the end of Silver Linings Playbook. That's, that's my two cents worth anyway. Suddenly, we're no longer watching Pat and Tiffany. We're watching Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. How does Pat know that Tiffany wrote that letter? Well, there's a moment in the parlay scene where Tiffany yells, If it was me reading the signs. Now, this is a line from the letter that Nikki apparently wrote. And suddenly, Pat realizes that Tiffany was the one who wrote the letter. Now, this would make sense if he hadn't already read that letter out loud to Tiffany earlier in the film. And not only did Tiffany hear him say the line, but they had a whole conversation about it. That's how she got him to keep dancing with her. Now, I know there are lots of people who love this film, and there's certainly great points in it. But for me, in terms of the empathy and the narrative drive, it doesn't work so well. Thank you so much, Valerie. So for our final thoughts and takeaways, specifically for writers, we like to round out our discussion with these few key takeaways. What did we learn to really level up our craft? So Anne, what do you got for us? Well, my key takeaway as both a writer and an editor is to be sure that your 15 or 20 core scenes or moments Proceed organically from the meaning you want your story to have, that is, your genuinely global genre. Other scenes and moments can belong to secondary characters, but your protagonist must own the core scenes, make the core climactic decisions, and change along the value range of your consciously chosen genre. This is StoryGrid 101 stuff, but I will be the first to admit that it's very hard work and it takes a lot of practice. So I would advise people to start by looking back at almost all of our show notes, probably from season two on forward, for the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff summaries, which are all built on the 15 core scene concept and will at least get you started. Every storyteller needs to master the task of summarizing briefly anyway. You all need to do it. You're going to need to pitch your story to agents, to editors, and to publishers, or you're going to need to blurb your book if you're self-publishing. And you're going to need this short, pithy synopsis, even just to discuss your book in interviews, podcasts, at readings, and so forth. So get on that, writers. It's a very important skill to have. Okay, so my takeaway is that we often say that specificity is the key to universality. But which specifics are we talking about? The options are infinite. So my advice is to focus on the specific details that reveal the subjective meaning the protagonists assigns to the story events and choose a point of view and narrative device that allow you to emphasize that specific meaning. For me, Silver Linings Playbook is an excellent reminder that we've got to nail the fundamentals of storytelling because out of them grow more advanced techniques like empathy and narrative drive. Unless the fundamentals are in place, the other things we're trying to do with our story just won't work. The biggest lesson I've learned studying this story is not actually even about beginnings. It's about studying something that you love. I think this applies not only to you know films that we love or novels that we've loved, but also our own work because we get so close to them and we love our characters so much, it's really hard to see what is not working. And that's why we have the story grid because the story grid gives us objective tools and principles about story structure that help us make our stories better because that's what we're here to do. We're not here to cut all of the things that we love about a story. We're here to make it better. So I've learned a ton studying the story about being able to recognize the things that aren't quite working and still give myself permission to love the story, which is weird that I have trouble doing this, but maybe it's just me. As always, I just want to say a special thank you to Anne, Leslie, and Valerie for just helping me level up my craft by making me look harder at things that I love. 
To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Kim Barton through the StoryGrid Guild. Kim writes, I have questions about how to balance two protagonists, like in a love story where you have the point of view of both lovers, if both characters are either equal in importance or nearly so. Is it crucial for both to hit all the important moments in a story, like the all is lost moment? What is the best way to handle it if the characters have different inciting incidents or crisis or an all is lost moment? How do you handle it if their inciting incidents, crisis, etc. happen at different points in the story? Do you have to meet all five commandments for both main characters in the global story? Or is it best to pick one character to be the dominant one and make sure that character's story hits all the commandments? At the scene level, when tracking value shifts, do you only do it for the point of view character in a particular scene? Okay, we've got all kinds of really awesome, important questions here. Anne, can you help us sort through this? I will do my best. It is a great question or a set of questions, really. And I had to deal with what I think is the primary question here about a single protagonist or two protagonists when I was writing my own love story, Restraint. Now, I wanted both my lovers to be equal in importance. They are co-protagonists. Like you, Kim, the questioner Kim, not you, uh, Kim Kessler, (laughs) my story's point of view alternated between the two lovers. It was a big hurdle for me to accept that, yeah, one of them does have to be the protagonist, the one whose life value shifts the most. For my story, it was the one who had the most at stake in committing to the relationship. It'll probably be the one the reader meets and attaches to first, regardless of how awesome the other lover might be. And I trust that in a good love story, both lovers are pretty awesome. Now, Sean and I talked a bit about this back on the Masterwork Experiment in the context of Brokeback Mountain. And I'm pretty sure I originally found this piece of advice in a book called The Art of Dramatic Writing. It's an old book by a guy named Laios Egri. However, I got it from the library and I couldn't check because I gave it back a long time ago. In a love story, you must choose one of the lovers as your protagonist and treat the other one as a form of antagonist. One lover has an antagonistic effect on the other, either through declaring love too soon in that obligatory premature declaration of love scene or being too reticent if, if it's the pursued partner. Usually one is the pursuer and the other is the pursued, which I would argue is kind of where the concept of a gender divide comes from. That's a subject for another time. This is not to say that one lover is the antagonist of the whole story. More often, the principal antagonistic force in a love story is a harmer, someone who does not want the love to thrive and who actively strives to keep the lovers apart. It can be a societal force like economic differences, incompatible careers or goals, things like that. But think about the arc of a love story. If two lovers meet, fall in love, agree that they want to be together for the long term, and proceed to marriage or partnership, that's nice, but it's not much of a story. One of them has to convince the other, court the other, trouble the other's peace of mind at least a little, and that's what I mean by being a bit of an antagonist. Of course, each of your lovers should have their own internal genre, depending on how each one has to change to come to the point of making that all-important commitment. It's usually worldview. It's sometimes it's status. I don't know if I've ever run across a morality one, but it probably exists. But remember, the love story itself progresses along its own value range from indifference to attraction to desire to commitment to intimacy, and you have to measure those value shifts against a single protagonist. It's the protagonist who reaches the all-is-lost moment. That moment had better have something to do with the other lover, of course, but it's not necessarily an all-is-lost moment for them both equally. Elizabeth Bennett's all-is-lost moment, to take a very popular example, is when she believes her sister's bad actions have made it forever impossible for Mr. Darcy to love her. She has no idea what Darcy is up to at that moment, and neither does the reader. We suffer with her alone. Now, to answer the last part of your question, it's the same in a love story as in any other kind. You typically track the value shift in a given scene for the point of view character in that scene. That shift should be associated with the point of view character's internal genre, assuming that point of view character has one, as well as being tied to your global genre. It's really simpler than it feels. As soon as you simply say, yep, lover A is my protagonist and lover B is a little like lover A's antagonist. I hope this helps. Good luck with your love story, and thanks for a great question. I love all of that, and I wholeheartedly agree. I struggled with this so much with my own novel. 
it's so interesting because you could tell a story so many different ways. So you have to make these decisions. And making those decisions creates those constraints that Leslie was talking about and makes those decision-making so much easier. Thank you for all of that, Anne. I think it's just fabulous advice. If you have a question about crafting your beginning or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT or better still by going to StoryGrid.com slash resources, clicking on the Editor Roundtable podcast and leave us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Leslie, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into Silver Linings Playbook. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp on how to think about crafting an intentional beginning for your own story. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes, which we always recommend you check out, at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. We would love to continue to grow our audience and reach more writers. Join us next time when Valerie will look at forces of antagonism in the 1982 film Blade Runner. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.